prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show for Wednesday, April the 12th of 2023. I got the date wrong on Monday. And nobody said anything in the comments. Are, are you not listening to the first line? Is that what's going on, folks? If I get the date wrong, you got to tell me. I don't know what day it is. I just got finished moving to Texas. I just carried every single thing I owned. I flew to El Paso, took a drive to Las Cruces, and then uh, loaded everything I owned and then drove the same day back to Texas. So I have no idea what day it is. I'm just guessing. I believe today is Wednesday the 12th. All right, we got much discussed today. And uh, the biggest thing that's been going down is a resurgence. And what in the heck is the FBI doing with informants inside the Catholic Church? I started having my phone blow up. I read what uh, Jim Jordan's office had to to say about it. We're going to discuss all that things. I've got a theory that's a little bit more insidious than what's actually going on in the public right now. And I've got a pretty good sense that it might be accurate. So uh, definitely want to hear what that is. Um, what about, are there restrictions that law enforcement is supposed to have when it comes to things like the first amendment protected activities? What do those look like? Um, and how does it get played out at least on the federal end? I'm going to talk to you about that. How long have the abuse has been going on? We can go into the history of this a little bit. I think you're going to be, um, I think you're not going to be surprised that it's been happening for a long time. Uh, but we did let it happen in a lot of ways. And so I think there's uh, there's some culpability on everybody's part because most people sort of allowed it to go down. And as I said, I am in Texas right now. So the buzz around me is, is Governor Abbott, Greg Abbott, going to pardon Sergeant Daniel Perry? We're going to discuss why it's so important that he does. And also what the challenge is. There's a little bit of a challenge uh, built into the Texas Constitution. So we'll talk about that. Uh, quick word from our sponsor, Patriot Cooler. You can go to PatriotCoolers.com and check out all the wonderful products that they make. Like I said, I do dig their design. I've actually got my cup right here. It's just sitting on the table here, ready to go. You can hear it. There it is, keeping things cold for me. Um, They're a good product. It's a good company. uh, They're contributing and they are supporting the Kyle Serafin Show. So use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. You'll get 10% off anything that you order. That's a nice help. Uh, and when you do, if you order more than $50, you're going to be getting free shipping. That's cool too. And lastly, they support disabled vets, the post 9-11 disabled vets to help them uh, increase the accessibility in their homes. That's always a good thing. It is a good thing to be able to support multiple causes. Uh, this podcast that you're enjoying, the uh, the folks that serve our country that have uh, have given something up, usually some part of their body or some function. And, um, and uh, you can walk away with a tangible good too that says Patriot on it, which is a great... Uh, it's a great thing. It beats the heck out of something like what the heck is a Yeti. Uh, you're not a monster. You're not a snow monster. So check out PatriotCoolers.com. Use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. All right, let's dig into what's going on. So this is the gift that keeps on giving in so many ways. I think that's the easiest way to say it. Now, when I talk to my buddy Steve Friend, he calls it the thermal exhaust port on the Death Star. And what are we talking about? We're talking about the memo... It keeps being referred to as a memo in Congress, but this is an intelligence product that was released by the Richmond field office of the FBI saying that they were going to target radical traditionalist Catholics. We're going to revisit the piece that I wrote on there because it's just coming right back into focus. And I'm going to give you some, uh, some long form analysis. Plus we're going to get into the history of this thing. So um, let's, 
Let's see what I can pull up right here. This is the piece. You can see it at UncoverDC.com. That is our friend Tracy Beans. Tracy Beans was gracious enough and brave enough to publish this document. And uh, kudos to her for doing so. She let me put my own byline on there. And this is why I keep telling the DOJ they have to treat me like a journalist. I am writing journalistic products and I don't work for the FBI. Um, although I may actually cover some of the fun stuff on there. We'll, we'll probably talk about it on Friday. You may have noticed we skipped our, our long-form interview for Monday, and that's because I've got something special coming up on Friday. In two days, we're going to have an interview with George Hill, a suspendable, retired FBI supervisory intelligence analyst, and uh, he's going to answer all the questions that you have been punching out on True Social and on Twitter about the Boston Marathon bombing because we have the 10-year anniversary on the 15th, which will be Saturday. So we're going to have that taped out and put out to you on the 14th on Friday. All right. So the article, um, which I don't think I actually wrote the title of it. That's, that might be a beans thing. Uh, the FBI doubles down on Christians and white supremacy in 2023 by me. Uh, this was on February 8th, 2023 uncoverdc.com once again. And, uh, what we're going to do is discuss, this is the uh, reader function, by the way. If you've never used these things, actually, I think I can show you up here. This is the reader piece right here. It goes to the normal page. That's what it normally would look like. If you're looking on our Rumble channel, to the left of the the web address on your browser, you'll often find a little thing that looks like a notebook. And if you do that, you can get a very clean format. It's also a pretty good way to skip the paywall in certain places. So if you need to do such a thing, um, we're going to scroll into the actual web page only because there's some useful photographs of the document itself, which I did want to bring up here. Uh, once again, this, this thing says that the, uh, the Richmond field office, the Richmond division of the FBI was looking to protect Virginians from the threat of white supremacy. No surprise. And uh, they believe that it found home within Catholics who prefer the Latin Mass, which may be you. Maybe you're one of those people who likes the Latin Mass. That would be fine. In fact, there are plenty of FBI agents. There are plenty of FBI personnel that actually also appreciate the Latin Mass. You'd be in good company. And yet, the Bureau has decided to come after it. So what I want to do is focus on a couple of things on this uh, particular document. And what I want to do is focus on page number two which is right here. And we're going to pull this up in a big way. I'm going to read a couple of things here that I think are quite interesting. And, and then I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. So in the, the first paragraph on this page, page number two, like I said, you can go to uncoverdc.com. You can scroll down just a little ways and you'll open up. There's eight pages to the document. The second page, first paragraph in the third line, it says that the overall RTC, that's Radical Traditionalist Catholic Community, is likely to remain relatively stable, show modest growth, providing racially motivated violent extremists, RMVEs, FBI does love their acronyms, a persistent Catholic-oriented base with which to interact. The FBI Richmond did not include, okay, I want you to pay attention to this, did not include an analysis of alternatives in this product due to the quality of the source information and the lack of significant uncertainties. The quality of the source information and lack of significant uncertainties. Hmm. The quality of the source information is so good that they don't need an analysis of alternatives, which is a standard part of these types of documents. And there is a lack of uncertainty the lack of significant uncertainties. So this is a certain write-up, okay? 
That's part number one. Part number two, uh, this is going to scroll down below the redacted block, which was uh, for official use only and therefore redacted. This one is FBI Richmond assesses with increasingly observed interest of RMVEs, the racially motivated violent extremists, in the RTC ideology, radically traditionalist Catholics, almost certainly presents new opportunities for threat mitigation through the exploration of new venues for tripwires and source developments. Tripwires and source development. A tripwire, which we discussed, I believe, the last time uh, I had this article up, this would have been now almost two months ago, a tripwire is someone that you have basically primed to be looking for something in particular. When you are looking for something in particular, uh, you can overtly approach them. And a great example would be the owner of a, uh, a feed store. Uh, or a manager of a feed store where you come in and you let them know, listen, if somebody were to come in here and ask for 185 you know, pounds or more or 500 pounds or more of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, we'd really like to know about that. Um, particularly if you don't recognize that as one of your regular customers who has a large you know, feed apparatus or a large need for fertilizer, a big property, something to that effect. If they're not growing a significant amount of things, it's a random person you haven't seen before and they're asking for X number of pounds. We'd love to know that. That's a tripwire. And so what would happen is you go to the, all the feed stores, you go to all the furniture, uh, fertilizer areas, set them all up. And then if and when somebody were to come in, then that tripwire would be hit and they would call the FBI and they would say, Hey, uh, this guy I don't know came in, and this is his information, and here's his credit card number, and whatever it is. And they they're, may or may not participate in helping out. That is a tripwire. Totally overt, uh, very legitimate. This happens in you know all kinds of different um, businesses. It's not just federal law enforcement. It can also be uh, state and local. They could go into a gun store and say, hey, if somebody comes in and asks how to get around a background check, and this and this and that, we'd like to know about it. That's an opportunity. That could be a straw purchase. This could be someone who is trying to traffic guns. So you use that tripwire. And then the second one is source development. Now, source development is pretty straightforward. That is a confidential human source known as CHSs or uh, confidential informants, in, depending on the type of law enforcement you do. The FBI calls them CHSs. So it says this assessment is based on reporting from, and then we have a big redacted section, and liaison and contact reporting demonstrating that racially motivated violent extremist actors have sought out and attended traditionalist Catholic houses of worship, as well as use language indicative of adherence to RTC ideology and social media. Okay, so the big news was is that Jim Jordan's office, after we released this piece, and they went and did what they do, which is subpoenas and, and requested records from the FBI, got 18 pages of redacted, heavily redacted information which indicated to their staff and was put out in a tweet that, in fact, the FBI had at least one undercover um, FBI employee going into one of these churches. So I'm going to read that line again in light of the idea that there's an undercover employee of the FBI in one of these churches. Okay, and you tell me if this doesn't sound like it's confirming it. This assessment is based on the reporting from unknown and liaison and contact reporting demonstrating RMVE actors have sought out and attended traditionalist Catholic houses of worship. And we're going to go back to the other one. 
where it says that there was no analysis of alternatives because the product, the quality of the source information was so high and there was a lack of significant uncertainties, right? It sounds like we're talking about there, there is in fact this undercover. So let's pull up this page real quick here. This is from the uh, catholicnewsagency.com, catholicnewsagency.com, um, writing under just the, uh, the bureau byline that they have, CNA. says, FBI used undercover agent to investigate Catholics, says Weaponization Committee Chairman. And that obviously is Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. And it says, quote, a new document reveals <laughs> revealed that the Richmond FBI used at least one undercover agent to obtain information about traditionalist Catholics, said Representative Jim Jordan, Ohio, who chairs the Subcommittee on Weaponization of the Federal Government. In response to this inquiry, the committee announced it received from the FBI a heavily redacted 18-page document that uncovered limited information about the agency's efforts to investigate a supposed link between traditionalist Catholics and, quote, far-right white nationalist movement, end quote. The committee has requested further information about the leaked memo dated January 23rd. That's our memo. That's the one we put out. We being me and, uh, and Tracy Beans and those that uncover DC. And the memo, which is actually called a domain awareness program, it's a intelligence product, uh, was later re- uh, retracted by the FBI. As we've reported on this podcast, it actually took a little bit longer than it should have. It took uh, you know at least a solid week and change. They said it was gone or that it was going to be removed, but it wasn't. Uh, but now it's gone, supposedly. Uh, Folks that are working inside the Bureau have told me that they have not been able to access it at this point. All right. Uh, And then we say what it was titled. This is a pretty straightforward article. So so apparently there is a undercover working to report back and try to tie this link into radical traditionalist Catholics and white supremacists. It seems unlikely. Um, This didn't sit very well with Josh Howley who's the senator from Missouri. So I'm going to read his piece here. I've got a tweet from him and then also his letter that he went to to Merrick Garland with. I'm setting up something here that I think is going to be a little bit even more concerning than what any of these people know, because I don't believe they know this. So Merrick Garland says, he says, Merrick Garland told me under oath, this is Josh Howley's tweet, the FBI was not targeting Catholic parishes. That appears to have been a lie. I want the truth. I'm going to go ahead and bring up his whole page here so you can see... um, the actual letter, this is uh, written on the United States Senate letterhead. It's dated April the 11th. That would have been yesterday. It says, Dear Attorney General Garland. You ever notice, too, by the way, they, uh, they call him uh, General Garland sometimes? <laughs> it's really weird. He's an attorney general. I don't know the general is his title. But uh, because they do that, some of the guys that work in the FBI that are my buddies will always refer to him as the general. And, uh, and not in a way that is respectful necessarily. But uh, anyhow, Attorney General Garland, last month I questioned you before the Senate Judiciary Committee about the recent anti-Catholic actions by the Department of Justice. There was a targeting of Catholic pro-like activist Mark Hout with overwhelming FBI force. As you'll remember, we interviewed Mark on Super Bowl Sunday and uh, put it out the next day, all based on trumped-up charges, which he swiftly was acquitted of. And then there was the internal Memorandum issued by the FBI's Richmond Field Office calling for the reconnaissance and investigation of traditionalist Catholics. I like that, reconnaissance. That's accurate, I think. Well said, Senator Halley. 
Uh, alarmed by this emerging pattern, I asked you directly whether the Department of Justice has a, quote, problem with anti-Catholic bias, and your response could not have been clearer. According to you, the Department of Justice did not have any bias against any religion of any kind. Well, that's interesting. We're going to dig into that. There's some information that, that that may not surprise you, but there are some biases within the FBI, and it's not necessarily about Catholics, uh, at least not recently. I mean, that's the new, most recent piece, but it, uh, not historically. That's not been where it's at. Finally, I asked you, quote, how many informants do you have in the Catholic churches across America? And you denied the claim a third time. That's, uh, that's perfect. Coming right out of this uh, Holy Week, the denial three times, right? That's the way it works. Uh, said, quote, I don't know, and I don't believe we have any informants aimed at Catholic churches. Hmm. So what's interesting is, is when you use the word informants, it's commonly used uh, to describe the confidential human source relationship. This is not the same thing. An informant is not the same thing as an undercover agent. An agent is someone who works on behalf of the government that is employed by the government. A informant is generally speaking, someone who is, um, coerced or paid, but not through a salary. They're not a W-2 employee of, of the federal government, if that makes sense. So maybe this was an issue of wording. I keep telling the people that are advising the weaponization committee, and uh, you know, now I may have to reach out to the Judiciary Committee as well. Words matter to these people. They matter a lot. Um, <laughs> they matter to the point where they can get away with things. They're able to weasel out of certain questions because they are phrased in a way that is not specific or has a specific meaning to them that is maybe not the same way that the senator or the congressman intended it. And I think it's a missed opportunity because if you're not following up with precise language, then you are going to allow these people to skate by on some of this stuff. Um, that is a very real possibility that Merrick Garland knew exactly what he was saying. It's also possible he has no idea what's going on. Um, he seems to be one of those folks who is happy with the title and yet doesn't want to do the job. And that's why you got people like Lee Loftus and uh, Lisa Monaco. These are going to be the uh, the assistant attorney generals that are actually running the show. We'll see. All right. Uh, so Josh Halley continues. He says, all of this was false. As of recent investigative findings uh, on the House Judiciary Committee show, following the revelation, the revelations of the FBI's Richmond Memorandum, the committee sought further information, and despite the FBI stonewalling, the committee finally succeeded in extracting a heavily redacted document revealing damning facts. What are the facts? First, the FBI's infiltration proposal was apparently based on information from an undercover employee. Okay. This is claimed by the Weaponization Committee. They uh, cite a tweet, which went out yesterday, a uh, day before maybe, went out on Monday, I think. Uh, showing that they had, in fact, uh, confirmed this. Now, I've got a little bit more information about that, too. Uh, the second, the FBI apparently contemplated engaging in outreach to the Catholic leadership in the traditional Paris for the purpose of sensitizing these congregations to the warning signs of radicalization, radicalization and enlisting their assistance to serve as suspicious activity tripwires. So that, that's a legitimate technique. It's not a legitimate technique in a church, per se, because I think you'd have to actually show that that was a realistic possibility that there was this sort of radicalization happening, and I think it's absurd. However, tripwires as a general rule are not an issue because they are overt by their nature. They are not a covert relationship. They are not a secretive relationship, and generally speaking, they don't involve any money or financial um, you know, transactions, anything to that effect. So 
he says this shows the department is clearly aided at cultivating sources and spies. Sources and spies. We love that word, but uh, but it is spying. You know, that's what in a very colloquial sense in Catholic parishes, regardless of what you claimed before the Senate Judiciary Committee. All right, so that's Josh Halley's thing. Um, I'm going to throw another idea at you. The we got to go back to the original document, but there's no analysis of alternatives of this product due to the quality of the source information. The source information was so good, we don't need any alternative analysis. And the lack of significant uncertainties, it was such so certain that there's no need for this analysis. I talked to a retired and very experienced intelligence community professional, both uh, civilian and military experience. And we've, we've come up with a statement about this to say that just like the 50-something uh, the uh, intel community professionals who believe that the Hunter Biden laptop had all the hallmarks the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. I would say that this intelligence product has all the hallmarks of the author of the product being the source of the information. That the undercover employee is in fact the author of this document. So when you're dealing with intelligence sourcing, and you have multiple sources of information, which happens all the time, they don't all have the same view to the same information. So you get um, you get different depths from each individual source. Let's say you have source one, source two, and then you have some sort of a technical source that could be a, a pole camera, it could be a uh, you know wiretap or something like that. None of them are going to get the pole picture. And when you have an individual a human being coming and talking to you, uh, I we likened it in our conversation to a plug outlet and to a plug going into an outlet. So the plug has uh, three different things. It's got the hot, it's got the neutral, and it's got the ground. If you don't know anything about electrical service, when you're looking at the left and the right of your um, of your wall outlet, one of them has a sort of a larger side, one of them is a little bit smaller. Those are the two blades, and then one of them is round and circular, right? Okay, so the circular one is the ground, and then the other two are going to be the hot and the neutral. So in your plug outlet, they're all the same length. They all have the same depth. When you're dealing with intelligence sources, you oftentimes get different amounts of depth because everybody has a different look, and that's very natural. In the case of this particular document and the way that it's written, it appears that they all kind of have the same depth. It's such good source information that they don't have to do alternative analysis. And that is very unusual, unless... The person who is doing it actually has the sophistication and the knowledge base to be able to both do analysis and get the information without any sort of air gap. So that's a very interesting and curious thing. So who is this person that wrote this intelligence product? My initial assumption, because it's an intelligence analyst, is that it would be a female, because that's mostly who the cadre of intel analysts are. But not this one. This one was actually written by a young man, and I'm not going to get into identities. I'm going to get into a profile because I think it's relevant to this, this document in, in, in a big way. This young man was a recent graduate from Georgetown University, which is a Jesuit college. So in addition to it being a left-leaning academic institution, like so many of them are at this point, 
it's also a Catholic institution and sort of a radical Catholic, radical um, uh, noir, or I don't know, new type Catholic. I guess it's not noir. It's a, it's a nouveau Catholic. Uh, the Jesuits have been pushing a, uh, for about the last 20 years, maybe even longer than that, they've been pushing a breed of Catholic theology that's known as liberation theology. Liberation theology is Marxism packaged in Catholic clothing. And when I went to high school, which was 20 plus years ago, I actually had a number of very young priests who had that sort of same sensibility. Uh, some of them I still know. And they're, <laughs> some of them have left the priesthood to engage in lifestyles of um, you know homosexual relationships. So that's interesting. But the, the liberation theology ideas grew mostly from their experiences in Latin America, which is also curious because that's who the current Pope is. The Pope came out of Argentina, Many of these, and is also a Jesuit. Many of the Jesuits that were in Latin America were were um, lured in and were ensconced with this liberation theology because it does have a fundamental appeal about uh, inequalities and, and um, that that people who are poor should be you know not taken advantage of. They should be able to th- prosper and thrive. And and a lot of the places where these guys were doing missionary work or where they were serving communities were in fact very underprivileged, and in fact, they were dealing with a lot of local corruption from unfair systems. So it's not it's not a nefarious or evil thing. It's just what their experience was, and it led them to this thing, where they are today. Okay, so we've got a young intelligence analyst, very new to the FBI within the last couple of years, graduate of a Jesuit college, and happens to be writing this very analytical piece I'm going to run back to it for a second here. I'm going to read you just how analytical this thing is. I've been a Catholic for 41 years. I don't know this stuff. And I've talked to people who are well into this game, and they said this is a high-level academic analysis of what's going on. So let me just read the analyst's note. This is the note of the person who wrote the, the document. Analyst note. The Society of St. Pius X is an international priestly society that promotes the traditional Catholic priesthood and the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass and sacraments. It's named after Pope Pius X, whose anti-modernist stance serves as the organization's inspiration. The SSPX is currently considered canonically irregular, i.e., not in full communion with the Vatican. The SSPX has spawned a number of offshoots. These include the SSPX Dash Resistance, aka the SSPX Marian Corps, SSPX MC, which rejects SSPX attempts to reconcile with the Vatican. The Priestly Society of St. Peter's, FSSP, which holds many of SSPX beliefs and practices, but ultimately split from the SSPX in order to stay in full communion with the Vatican and the Society of Pius V which does not consider Vatican II valid or binding, questions uh, questions the legitimacy of all popes since Vatican II and has no canonical standing, i.e. is schismatic. This is somebody writing who has a pretty high-level understanding of what's going on in the Catholic Church in these sort of factionalized groups, in the so-called radical traditional Catholics or what most people would call tradcats. What are the odds that this person is actually attending Mass and then writing about it and infiltrating based on his own interest. 
That's my argument. I think that is the case. And I'm not the only one. There are a number of others that have read this document and also the information that Jim Jordan's office has put out and see that as the most likely case. So that shows you that you have an activist analyst who is out doing investigative work in the field, which is not what they do. Um, but maybe he thinks he's Jack Ryan. That's acceptable, I guess. Uh, and he was able to write this document and caused a lot of hot water. The Catholic Church is not going to let this go, particularly the people that I'm talking to within the church. They are not going to let this fall, nor should they. Okay, because when the church is being in, uh, infiltrated and reported on, it's a it's an attempt to open up access to all Christians, as I, as I mentioned in one of my other podcasts. But moreover, they're using the same techniques that they used in the state of Texas last year when they investigated a couple of different churches, served search warrants on simultaneously at three different locations of one particular church that was in Texas and Georgia. I can't remember. There were two, two locations in one state and one location in, in the other state, and I couldn't tell you which ones they are. I do remember reading about it. It was in June of last year, 2022, and we could pull up. I may throw it in the show notes. Um, there's plenty of coverage in it. USA Today covered it. It went mainstream. But they referred to it as a cult-like uh, faction of Christianity. In this case, we're talking about radical traditional Catholics. And, and that is a very uh, insidious way to approach these things. What it's saying is, oh, don't worry about these types of Catholics. They're not the kind of Catholics that you might be. They're not the same Catholics as your as your aunt or your uncle. These are the radical tra- Catholics. They're the, they're the ones that are doing weird things that are not part of it. They are, they are cult-like, just like the church that was uh, taken down last year. So it's not just an evangelical... Uh, parish or an evangelical um, community that you could be a part of. These are these are the bad people. So you can let us do the thing we're going to do. You can let us stomp over this First Amendment protected activity. Why were they looking into this in the first place? Under what circumstances would you assume that this makes any bit of sense other than this person is showing up and looking for it in a place because either he has an axe to grind against this particular group or uh, because the FBI is ideologically motivated to go after small groups of it are um, parts of Christianity. So you'd say, well, is there any other history of that happening? Does the FBI go after specific religions or specific denominations of religion? I'm glad you asked. I guess I asked myself, didn't I? So let's look at the ACLU. These are some right-wing people, aren't they? Here we go. The ACLU and an article on their website from their content strategists. This is uh, dated November 8th of 2021. We've got a nice picture of a man kneeling in a mosque on a prayer carpet, and it is how the FBI spied on Orange County Muslims and attempted to get away with it. Okay. So let's read a little bit about this because there's plenty of it. I have several articles I'm going to quote from here. In 2006, the FBI ordered an informant to pose as a Muslim convert and spy on the congregants of several large, diverse mosques in Orange County, California. (laughs) They said the agent, but he's not an agent, actually. He was a CHS, a confidential human informant, and he was a special kind, which we'll read about in a bit, but also known as a professional CHS. Literally, that was his job. Uh, the, The agent, Craig, I don't even know how to pronounce his last name, so Montiel is what it looks like. M-O-N-T-E-I-L-H, if you know how to pronounce that. Spell it out phonetically in the comments for me, and I will be 
I will be grateful for it. Professed his conversion before hundreds of congregants during the month of Ramadan. Renaming himself Farouk, the informant quickly made friends and impressed members of the community with his seeming devotion. And the whole time he was secretly recording conversations and filming inside people's homes, mosques, and businesses using devices hidden in everyday objects like the keychain fob of his car keys. That's a good one, by the way, the uh, the old key fob recording device. Watches are good, too. There's some other options. You can put things in buttons and so on. So um, so that's good. It says, among those subjected to FBI spying were Sheikh Yajir Fazaga, the imam of the Orange County Islamic Foundation, also known as OCIF, and Ali Udun Malik, and uh, Yasser Abdul Rahim. These are congregants of the Islamic Center of Irvine, and together they all sued, these three men all sued the FBI in 2011. This just came to a head last year, by the way, in the Supreme Court, for unlawfully targeting Muslim community members in violation of their constitutional rights to religious freedom and privacy. The FBI attempts to stop the litigation of the plaintiff's religious discrimination claims by arguing... Uh, that further proceedings would reveal state secrets. Of course, because national security is the way that you get away with doing these things. You cannot do this stuff in a criminal investigation, but national security seems to trump it, and that's the, the way they've been playing it. So this goes back to 2006. The FBI has been playing this game. This is a post-9-11 and pretty close to the to the vest, five years after 9-11. There's still plenty of instincts. There's there's the uh, Patriot Act and the, the strong movement against this. The Iraq war was going on, Afghanistan as well. And they're perfectly fine with the idea that we are going to invade the Muslim mosques and observe people by gaining their trust by posing as a member of their religion. And why? Why would they do that? I mean, were there allegations or informations that federal crimes were happening, that these people may be involved in some sort of federal crime? I don't think so. I think that the FBI has a lot of professional CHSs, and many of them work in mosques. And they make the most money of anybody in the FBI's informant program. How much money, you think? Well, Julie Kelly did some reporting um, not too long ago. I want to say it was in October of last year. And this reporting was a whole series of things about uh, source recruitment and, and usage. And uh, she quoted me in there at some point because we had a discussion about sources and their uses and how, how it operates within the FBI. FBI sources get paid in cash. They sign a name that is not their own. It is a source name. Um, if you have a pink hot rod car, maybe your source name is Barbie. If you um, you know, are a guy who works at a gym, maybe uh, your source name is Deadlift or Flex. Okay, And that's what they sign when they receive cash. Now, this cash could be small amounts, a couple hundred dollars. It could be medium amounts, like a couple thousand dollars, or it could be insanely, <laughs> insanely high amounts, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. There are people on the FBI's books that make six figures cash, mid six figures, 250, $300,000, $350,000 a year, and have for a long time. They are primarily in the national security space. 
and they are, that means they're either counterterrorism sources, which is probably where the most money is, and then counterintelligence sources, which is the other, you know, high dollar stuff. None of these necessarily make criminal cases. In fact, some of these people get paid and don't generate any cases, but they're giving very valuable information, like spying on the Orange County Islamic Foundation or the Islamic Center of Irvine and plenty others. There were uh, mosques in Northern Virginia that I was aware of that we had penetrations in there, and there were people that were being watched for many years. In fact, the most egregious of these that I can think of is my team was engaged in a surveillance after a search warrant of a house where a member of the Islamic community in Northern Virginia, I don't want to be too specific about it because I have no idea where the prosecution of this case went, but they had him under observation. He was intermittently under surveillance, and they certainly had access to some of his uh, electronic devices for 23 years. And they finally executed a, a search warrant, arrest warrant in either late 2020 or 2020, early 2021, something like that, right in that range. So this is a pre-9-11 case that never generated any terrorist charges, although he was under observation under a, a counterterrorism uh, banner. They eventually arrested him for child pornography. I don't know the circumstances of how much child pornography was involved and what the evidence there was. In fact, they were actually pulling it out in the search warrant while I was sitting and keeping an eye so the guy didn't run off. What I can say is 23 years under government observation is an awful long time to not generate a case in the thing that they were watching you for. And then eventually, and I don't want anyone doing, you know, generating or trading or enjoying child pornography. I think they should go to jail. There's no doubt about it. And yet there has got to be a provision that we do things fairly. And by the book, um, you can't have a government that stares and spies on you for two and a half decades just to generate something. And what they generate is not the reason why they were there. That is a big problem. That should bother everybody. Um, I'm going to pull up an NBC article here. Same story. So we'll go into that. Um, this is from 2009. Okay. So this is 2006 was when they started doing these things. 2009, you've got uh, Robert Mueller. And he says, the agency will continue to use informants inside American mosques despite complaints from the Muslim organizations. This is old news. This is not new stuff at all, folks. This has been going on for a long time. Uh, in this case here, I'm just going to quote a little bit of this article because I think it's worth noting. Like I said, from NBCNews.com, uh, FBI Director Robert Mueller on Friday defended the agency's use of informants within U.S. mosques despite complaints from Muslim organizations that worshipers and clerics are being targeted uh, instead of possible terrorists. What allegation or information was going on that was leading to these mosques? Were there tips? Maybe sometimes. Certainly not all. He said, we don't investigate places, we investigate individuals. Oh, well, there's that. That's comforting. Yes, and, and one of those individuals that I'm aware of was investigated for two and a half decades and didn't do the thing that they thought, and they never had evidence thereof. To the extent that there may be evidence or other information of criminal wrongdoings, then we will undertake those investigations. Um, he said, we will continue to do it. He called the relationships with U.S. Muslims very good, but acknowledged disagreements without providing anything specific. There are people in the Council of Islamic Organizations in Michigan that sent a letter and were asking the Attorney General Eric Holder at the time to uh, to make this stop. The Detroit 
office <laughs> went ahead and denied that they had anything going on. Uh, this is just a thing that the Bureau has done for a very long time. Uh, and then, of course, they have this big issue with what was going on in California. Here's another one. It says, in a California case, information about the informant who spied on the Islamic Center of Irving uh, came out of came out at a federal February detention hearing for the brother-in-law of Osadin bin Laden's, Osama bin Laden's bodyguard, an Afghan native and naturalized U.S. citizen named uh, Amadala Naiza, Naizi. Um, who was accused of lying on his citizenship and passport applications about terrorist ties. I guess if you're Osama bin Laden's bodyguard, you're probably tied to terrorism in some way. So, you know, you want people not to be able to do these sort of things. Uh, and yet you don't need the FBI sitting there looking at you forever. That seems like a little bit too long. Uh, I'm going to bring up another article here. This one's from 2021. This is written by uh, Trevor Aronson, who I think does excellent work. Highly recommend you check out his stuff in The Intercept. He's been writing about this thing for over a decade. And as I think I've mentioned on previous podcasts, his book, The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's uh, Manufactured War on Terrorism, definitely worth it. There's a 10-year anniversary edition that came out last year. Trevor Aronson wrote this article, Spy in Disguise, an FBI informant's unlikely role in upcoming Supreme Court case on surveillance of Muslims. Um, this is the guy, if you're looking on our Rumble page, you can see this is a stout, stout dude. This is the guy who was a reference earlier, Craig Montilla, uh, what is it? Montilla, Montilla, um, <laughs> probably butchered that, said he's no stranger. I like the way Trevor writes. It's really easy to digest what he has to say. He says, Craig uh, Montilla was, was uh, no stranger to federal agents. He was a hulking man who spent much of his teenage and adult years as an amateur bodybuilder. He much made a living ripping off drug dealers. And one time in 1986, the deal went bad. This is what I think is really interesting here. And Montiel found himself sitting across the table from agents of the DEA. They gave him two options. You can go to prison or you can become an informant. He chose the latter, launching a career as a professional snitch that lasted more than two decades. A professional snitch. This is, uh, and then they talked about some of the roles. So, so a professional source, I have a friend who actually used to train them. Uh, I think they're a highly valuable tool. They're kind of like a, uh, like an undercover, but they're someone with a very different background. They probably have a much shadier past. They can speak to it more intelligently. They can, they can be much more genuine when they attempt to do this, uh, kind of sell this, uh, this angle that they're coming at. So a professional snitch, this is, the, this is some of the roles they said that he was. Because he was of ethnically ambiguous appearance, he was versatile for both the DEA and the FBI. So they lend him over to work uh, FBI cases as well. And he covered cases ranging from white supremacists to Russian hitman to a Sicilian drug trafficker. He claims he was very good at what he did. At some point in time, he got caught up on state charges and the FBI didn't help him. Turns out when you have professional snitches, the hardest thing about running your undercover, uh, not, not your undercover operations, the hardest thing about running people who are not FBI employees or law enforcement employees, when you're running sources, uh, as I, I think I quoted to Julie Kelly, they're kind of a pain in the ass. There's no other way to say it. They call you at weird hours. They tell you things that are not reputable. They need things from you. They tell people that they work for the FBI or they work for this uh, police department and they think they're going to get out of things like tickets or drug deals or whatever other dumb things that they're involved in because the reason that they're usually in the orbit is because they're not good guys. Uh, some of them are. There's a small number of people that are they're ideologically motivated. They're patriotically motivated. They want to help out the country. The, we got some of those in the counterintelligence world where they come to you and they want to really just make a difference. 
they want to share information for the sake of the information. And basically all they get out of it is a cup of coffee that we pay for or breakfast or dinner, something to that effect. Um, some of them are paid very handsomely, but a fair number of them are not. So, uh, oh, and I, I made reference earlier to Julie Kelly's piece. The FBI pays out approximately on average $40 million in cash, $40 million in cash to these informants. And it doesn't mostly go to criminal cases. I got a buddy who was working an outlaw motorcycle gang in California and, uh, he had to write and it, you know, a big payoff for his source was five or $6,000, which they used to buy a motorcycle that the guy got to keep because he was going to go ride around with this outlaw motorcycle gang. Um, you know, spent 3,500 bucks on a bike and $500 on new tires on it kind of deal. So it could get safe to ride and then gave him some, you know, spending money to go on this trip. And then he came back and talked about whatever happened, uh, you know, on this trip. So the criminal cases don't get that much money. The big money is in these counterterrorism cases. In any case, um, this, this story here talking about being a professional snitch, this, uh, Aronson talks about the same story. So in, tw- in 2006, two agents with the FBI's counterterrorism section, which had gone from a lowest priority in the FBI pre 9-11 to the Bureau's best funded one, approached this guy, Craig, and asked him to pose as a Muslim convert and infiltrate mosques throughout Southern California, home to an estimated half million Muslims, a diverse set of Islamic worshipers living in the shadow of Disneyland's and the sprawling Orange County. If you don't like, um, graph, he, he writes kind of the way that you'd see people like Matt Taibbi do very long narrative form. I think it's really good stuff. So, um, you should definitely check out what he's been writing. And of course he, um, he just came out with a new series that's called the alphabet boys. It's a podcast. There's 10 episodes of it. So if you want to just binge that thing, you can definitely get more information about this. And when I say this is not a left or a right issue, this is a civil liberty. This has nothing to do with your politics. It really doesn't. Aronson and I are able to talk about things, even though our politics are, are not aligned, I imagine. Uh, we haven't gotten into it too deeply. I'm sure he has uh, significantly different feelings about the way the country should go. But what we do agree on is that journalists should be able to print and people should be able to go to their church and not be invaded. And mosques are in that same category for me. You should be able to celebrate your religion however you want. So his whole new podcast, The Alphabet Boys, is talking about the infiltration of the BLM and racial justice protest stuff that was going on in Colorado. We talked about a little bit of it because there was a woman named April Rogers who was an undercover cop coming out of the departments there and was walking around and posing as a sex worker in order to try and get these guys and sell them guns and do these put-up jobs. It's the same It's the same thing that happened to the Whitmer fednapping, as Julie Kelly has reported. It's the same thing that has been done to so many of these folks that are in the January 6th community. I think that they are experiencing this weaponized government coming after them for their politics. And they are being given opportunities to do things that didn't make any sense. Uh, And we're going to, we keep finding this stuff out. I mean, we're finding out that more and more that there were federal informants in the crowd. Of course we knew that. Well, who were they? And there were, were there undercover agents? Of course there were. Well, who are they? It turns out a bunch of them were with HSI. Um, I've seen some of the comments that you guys have written on the rumble channel. People don't, they're not familiar with HSI. Uh, so Let's talk about real quickly just the funding mechanism that goes on there. The FBI just got a it's a record budget. It's eleven point three billion dollars for twenty twenty three. That'll close out at the end of September. So eleven point three billion is up one and a half billion dollars from their biggest budget before, which was nine point eight billion. That was the year before that. So we're talking about a ten now an eleven billion dollar industry uh, agency. I've said this before. 
DHS operates on a $120 plus billion budget. It literally has 10 times the money that something like the FBI has. And it has a whole host of agencies doing an incredibly large number of things. It's got the Coast Guard, which I think is great. It's got CBP, Customs and Border Protection. It's got USBP, which is the Border Patrol. So it has all these different facets. It's got... um, it's got CISA, it's got the Citizen Immigration Services Administration, I think is what it's called. There are, uh, you know, and that's where our whistleblower friend, um, uh, Aaron Stevenson came from. It's got all kinds of different entities, but one of those is called HSI. And HSI is the Homeland Security Investigations. My friends in the intelligence community that are, you know, prior law enforcement or, you know, retired out of there are very concerned about places like HSI because Despite the fact that they have a law enforcement authority, that 1811 job code, which is criminal investigator, same as I used to do as an FBI agent, there's no such thing as special agents. Um, It's not a job. That's what we call ourselves. That's what the FBI refers to. You are a special agent, which is to say you're an agent of the government in a very narrow subset. That's the special part of it. In fact, being a special agent means you are less than an agent of the government. An agent of the government is like a cabinet level official or the president. They They can make decisions. They can make treaties and so on. Uh, You can't do that when you're a special agent. You have a narrow scope. But they've got special agents over there at HSI. And those agents are not confined by something called the DIOG. The DIOG is what tells the FBI what they can and can't do. It doesn't mean that they don't run all over roughshod on parts of the Constitution that we're seeing. But there are some, ostensibly some rules that are still governing their actions. And that is called the DIOG, the Domestic Investigations Operations Guide. You can Google it, you can pull it up in a a search engine, and you can read it. And it is voluminous. In fact, just a funny aside, uh, when COVID lockdown started happening, one of the first things that most people saw on the East Coast was a shortage of toilet paper. I'm sure that rolled across uh, the entire country. But there was a big shortage of toilet paper. And I jokingly went around to all the agents in my office. I was on an offsite. We weren't in the main field office. So we were on an offsite that was, um, you know, standalone in unmarked building. And it had not been cleaned out in many, many years. I found cassette tapes and tape players and things like that. And like old big, you know, D cell battery, the big bricks that you used to see you put down and you hit the record button in the eighties kind of stuff. Um, old filing cabinets and things full of papers that were all garbage. But one of the things that I found were the original copies of the FBI Diog, the uh, the Attorney General's Diog, which is just those, like I said, an operation guide. And it's four or five inches thick, that leafy tissue paper type printing you see in Bibles and government, um, you know, uh, law books and, and, um, and dictionaries, things like that. And this huge, you know, 15 pound book we had dozens of them they were all over the place stacked in this this uh this shelving unit so i grabbed them and i distributed them to each of the agents you know two at a time or so and i left a a big message on the board that just said uh in case of toilet paper shortage please take home you know two copies of the dialogue which everybody thought was quite funny um but could have been a real real lifesaver honestly because there was a real possibility and it's about that useful um because in that format, it is just a total pain to go through. And it's digitized now, so you don't need it. It's online and you can have access to it inside the uh, you know, the FBI servers. You can do search engine stuff and it's far more efficient. But 
in the case of this. Um, speaking of the dialogue, I found a copy of it online and there are parts of it that are redacted. There's actually more redactions than I expected. And one of the things they redacted was what a type five assessment is, which is one of the things that Jim Jordan's committee uncovered. I think it's worth noting. The FBI does three different types of investigative activities. They do assessments, they do preliminary investigations, and they do full investigations. And they are in that order, um, the amount of predication that it takes to open one up. So far less to open up an assessment than it is to do a uh, preliminary and then you know, uh, far more to do a full. That's supposed to be the most amount of information you need to have. The burden is the highest. Assessment has a whole bunch of different types. And one of them is a type five. And a type five assessment is literally an analysis of potential sources that you would use to recruit to work a full case. You can open up a type five assessment on, you know, who would we, who would we recruit to tell us about mafia finances. So you would, you know, find people that are where the cash is stored. You'd find people that are the attorney. You'd find people that are the, you know, I guess not the attorney because they would have the, um, some restrictions of what they could talk about. Maybe the accountant, um, you know, money transportation people, people that are in the front businesses and so on and so forth. And then you evaluate them in a whole matrices of who has access, who has placement, who has the most likely to be recruited sort of posture? Are they financially uh, insolvent? Do they have some sort of uh, criminal case they need to work off? Things like that. So you can actually work your way through and kind of rank people on who you want to be your informants. And literally, they actually authorized a type five assessment in the Richmond field office on the Catholic church, it sounds like. That's what Jim Jordan's office reported. I don't know if they know what that means, but I know what it means. And now you know what it means. It means that they actually were going to rank the potential recruitments of people as what they call PCHSs or potential CHSs. And then you can convert your potential CHS to an actual CHS, a real source, uh, when you recruit them and you get them to sign on to the books and you have to do a thing called admonishments, which is that you tell them the rules of the game, uh, what they can and can't do, what they can and can't say, what you will and will not do, what your you know roles and responsibilities are as a source and a handler, and then you're off to the races. They authorize this thing. I think that's that's worth noting, and it's it's pretty troubling. So um, let's let's wrap this little piece up here and talk about the Supreme Court, which obviously came down here and says the Supreme Court rules for the FBI. The FBI is allowed to have sources inside the Muslim community in this surveillance dispute. They uh, engaged in it in 2009. They took it to court, it looked like in 2011, if my memory is reading correctly, the ACLU. Yeah, 2011, they sued. And then here we go. It took 11 years to find out that the FBI is gonna be able to do it. The, uh, the court unanimously overturned the lower court's 2019 ruling saying that the federal law requiring government surveillance called uh, FISA, that's gonna be the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, trumped the state's secrets privilege, uh, a legal defense based on national security uh, that the government had, had asserted. So initially a lower court had said that yes, uh, your, your personal secrets, your, your state secrets are not gonna be good enough and then uh, the government won and they're able to keep doing this stuff. So go figure. And the Supreme Court overturned the uh, California Ninth Circuit, the San Francisco-based Ninth Circuit of Court of Appeals. So that's the that's the hint. This has been going on for a very long time. There's nothing new there. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to this stuff. Um, 
I do want to continue on a kind of the civil liberties front, and I want to talk about self-defense, which is going to take us over to what's going on with Daniel Perry right now. The um, I think they're they're not necessarily related, but they are they are a segue, and it's really an important thing. So the government wins on these things, and they're very dangerous. The government has a uh, shouldn't have an ideological poke to to uh, to engage in, but unfortunately, in the case of this one, this is uh, Daily Wire reporting, and I'm going to pull it up real quick. This is, says uh, Daniel Perry. This is going to be the uh, the sergeant, the army sergeant who was convicted of murder last week. And it says his legal team files a motion for a new trial. So there's two things that are happening at one time. Number one, they're going to try to get a new trial because they're going to say that uh, exculpatory evidence was excluded from their ability to present their self defense, um, their self defense legal strategy. And I think that uh, the videos that I've seen. And the audio that you can hear in those videos indicate that uh, he, you know, it doesn't matter if he said, I might get into a shooting tonight. You could say that any night you go out. I've had that briefing with FBI agents on surveillance when we went into bad neighborhoods. We might have to shoot somebody tonight. That's a thing that you that you put in people's mind as a preliminary idea so that they are preparing for the possibility of, of a violence that they may have to defend themselves from. If you are a rational, reasonable human being who's driving an Uber and you're moving around in an area that has been shut down by some wild protests and you state that, that's factual. That is, not, you know, it's your opinion based on what you're seeing. It's a, it's a reasonable analysis by a reasonable person. That's not premeditation. And I think that's ridiculous. But unfortunately, he's in Austin, which is a very lefty city at this point. And uh, of course, they have a Soros-backed DA in the, in the person of Jose Garza. So he failed to let them show some of the exculpatory evidence that showed the uh, the video here. So there's this motion. This is what they are pushing. The uh, the attorneys for Daniel Perry are attempting to get this retried under uh, procedural error. And of course, uh, this is the story of Perry. He actually shot a guy named Garrett Foster, who was a BLM activist. That sounded like and was carrying an AK-47 model on the streets in downtown Austin, where. Um, where Perry was a bit like basically cornered and stopped by a bunch of activists. And then uh, the story goes is that Foster raised his rifle. And uh, that's kind of a big deal because the minute somebody raises a rifle, so you've got this piece here from Governor Abbott. So he signaled that he's going to do a pardon. And this is why I think it's so important. There are procedural aspects that can be overcoming these these left-wing loony prosecutors and these really awful juries in certain places, like what we are seeing in January 6th. Uh, the, the jury pool in D.C. is, is highly biased and, and is not doing justice for these people. And this is another situation that seems to be the same case, because there's no question this was not premeditated murder. I don't care what they proved. It's, if they didn't let him show all the videos. That's not acceptable. So Governor Grayback says he um, he says Texas has one of the strongest stand your ground laws of self-defense that cannot be nullified by a jury or a progressive D.A. Unlike the president or in some other states, the Texas Constitution limits the governor's pardon authority to act only on the recommendations of the board of pardons and paroles. Um, but he does. He said, I've made the request and instruct the board to expedite its review of this case. I look forward to approving the board's pardon recommendation as soon as it hits my desk. Additionally, I have already prioritized reining in rogue DAs and the Texas legislature is working on laws to achieve such a goal. That's really important stuff. Very important. And it's important that he's taking that stand to say so. So thank goodness uh, the the governor of Texas is starting to step into the uh, to the arena on some of this stuff. So what if they cancel you? This is a man's life on the 
on the uh, on the docket at this point. And I wanted to just bring up the Texas Constitution because I think this is where we we get into certain things where let's just know what what these things say. This is Article Four of the Texas Constitution, Section Eleven, discussing the uh, the capabilities of the executive departments and specifically the Board of Pardons and Paroles, Parole Laws, Reprieves, Commutations, and Pardons, the Remissions of Fines and Forfeiture. Section A. The legislature shall establish a board of pardons and paroles and shall require to keep records of its actions and the reasons for its actions. Okay. Um, Part B, this is, I'm skipping a little bit of it, but part B is where it's important. It says all criminal cases except treason and impeachment, the governor shall have the power after conviction or successful completion of the term of deferred adjudication, adjudication, uh, community service on the written signed recommendation and advice of the board of pardons and paroles or a majority thereof to grant reprieve and commutations of punishments and pardons. So he needs the recommendation from this board, which is established by the legislature. And this is not the case in all States. This is the case in Texas specifically. And this is the Texas constitution, which puts this out there. Um, it says under the such rules, the legislature may prescribe and upon the written recommendation and advice, the majority of the board of pardons and paroles, she shall have the power to remit fines and forfeitures. He'll have the power to grant one reprieve in a capital case for a period not to exceed 30 days. He shall have the power to revoke conditional pardons with the advice and consent of the legislature. He may grant reprieves, uh, commutations of punishments and pardons in the case of treason. So there are even some circumstances where he can deal with treason. But the most important part is, is that the governor does not have the ability to act unilaterally in this state, but hopefully this man will not spend any more time behind bars than necessary. And they will move forward forthwith. Again, if somebody raises a weapon and points it into your car, you do not have to wait for that. Not in the state of Texas, and certainly not under the federal statutes that I worked on. The presentation of a weapon, we are all taught a very, very simple rule of human interactions, which is that action beats reaction. If you are going to try to wait till someone starts shooting, you will be dead. They do this drill where you actually hold a gun out, uh, out of the holster, pointed at somebody. And the person who is drawing from the holster can almost always beat you to the first shot is because action is the definitive movement. The reaction is always going to take a processing. There's a whole system of the OODA loop, and there's a science behind all of this stuff that says you're basically going to have to determine what your action is. You're going to have to execute that action. Then you have to move and do that thing. And it's always slower than the person who has already gone through that system and made the decision. So anyhow, um, shame on these, uh, these, this jury in the state of Texas that convicted this poor man. And, uh, I hope that he is, uh, he is pardoned forthwith. Folks, you've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, and it's Wednesday. We're going to have a fun ending of this game. We are going to be bringing up uh, George Hill at the end of this week, and we are going to discuss he was one of the two supervisory-level um, employees of the FBI that handled the Boston Marathon Task Force. So we're going to talk about some uh, some myths and what really went on 10 years ago with the bombing that happened in Boston on April 15th of 2013 now 10 years away. So you'll get that on Friday. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, by all means, please share this with your friends. We'd love it if you would hit the like button. If you are listening on Rumble, if you'll leave us a comment, I reply to almost all the comments and I do appreciate those. I think it bumps us up somehow in the algorithm. So by all means, give us a uh, comment on there, share what you did or you didn't like, things that you learned, things you didn't know, something that I didn't know that you want to add to it. All those things are all really good for me. I appreciate it. You can... Um, you can, yeah, share us on any of the places you see 
Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, so on. If you find us on a platform where we are not, let me know. And you can click through in the show notes and leave us a five-star review on Apple. We are up to 338 reviews. We've only been doing this since January, so I do really appreciate all that. I'm going to read one right here from T.P. Kansu, written uh, earlier this month. It says, Government Corruption. Kyle, really enjoyed your interviews and enlightenment that all bureaus are corrupt. God, isn't that the truth? As a former DOI, that's Department of Interior, BLM manager who refused the mandates and to quote unquote fall in line and retired early, I observed plenty of corruption within BLM, especially when this administration started placing people by checking the boxes versus their ability to do the job right. So true. Thanks so much, TP Kansu. That is such a sad time, but that is why we do this podcast. That's why we talk about these things. That's why we are exposing as much as possible. And I do try to give you the inside scoop. Um, if you are a former government employee or manager and you want to share something nasty about your old uh, work and kind of give people an understanding of the inside of the working, hit me up in the DMs on Twitter or on True Social. You can find me in either of those places. You can also visit our website at kyleserafin.com and you can contact me there. There's actually a contact us thing. Those emails go directly to me. Again, that's just kyleserafin.com. You can even find our embedded player if you can't download something or if you're sitting on a browser, you can pull down and listen to any of our shows on there as well. I do appreciate it. I will see you guys again on Friday with George Hill. Thanks so much for listening and we will see you all very soon. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.